Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we would love you more. So we ask that you would help us as we come underneath your word this morning. Father, that you would show us yourself and show us how you would have us to live in light of having received such a wonderful revelation from you. And Father, we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn back to the Gospel of Mark. We come this morning to a, a little passage, wonderful little passage, in chapter 4 that deals with the nature of divine revelation and emphasizes the obligations that come to anyone who receives the light of truth. Now, we live in an age, you don't need me to tell you this, but I will since you're here, um, we live in an age where the word truth means virtually nothing. Uh, truth is whatever you feel it to be, or whatever you want it to be. Our society says, you have your truth, I have my truth, they have their truth. Just don't speak about your truth in a way that nullifies my truth. Uh, that's sort of the cardinal sin of society. You don't speak about truth as if it has a capital T. If you do that, you'll be accused likely of hate speech. And to say that someone's subjective experience doesn't correspond with what reality is, uh, is a crime. But we believe that truth corresponds to what is real. We, truth is reality. So we know better than what we see in society. We understand that what we've been given in the Word of God and through the incarnation of Jesus Christ is absolute truth that corresponds to what is reality. We understand that. We know that because God is the one who has given us His Word, we know that it is true. We know that because God is truth. And so in a world that lives in constant darkness is, and is confused about the nature of truth and what is real, Christians, on the other hand, live in the full light of day. And we understand there's darkness all around, there's confusion, but we have the light of truth that illumines the darkness for us. And the concern of our text this morning is that in a society like our own, where truth is questioned uh, and not even uh, defined as corresponding to reality, the danger is that you and I might be content with the mere possession of truth. No one else has it. We have it, therefore we win. But our text comes to us this morning and reminds us that the mere possession of truth is not enough. That truth comes with certain obligations and responsibilities. And with these obligations, really, heaven and hell hinge. Now, these obligations come to us, and they sort of push us out of this contentment that we often have with just merely possessing the truth. And what our text does for us this morning is it calls us to be a faithful 
steward of the truth we've received. Now we understand fundamentally that we respond to truth with faith and repentance, right? We, we get that. But in this passage, Jesus gives two additional responses to the truth that are mandatory for every Christian. In fact, every time you hear the Word of God, it comes to you with the two obligations that we're going to look at this morning. And I will give them to you as we work our way through the passage. So I'm going to leave you suspended for a minute. But why don't you stand with me and we'll read God's Word and then we'll get into the text together. Mark chapter 4, and we'll read beginning in verse 21. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. You may be seated. Now I need to remind you of where we are in Mark's narrative before we get into this passage. At this point... We're just in chapter 4, but we're two years in uh, to the three-year ministry of Jesus, public ministry at least. And at this point, the establishment religious leaders of the day have now entirely turned against Jesus. We saw in chapter 3 and verse 6 that they had begun to plot for his death, and Jesus was not unaware of what was happening. He knows that the cross is coming for him, and he understands that Very soon, he'll be crucified, raised from the dead, and then ascend into heaven. So to prepare for this, Jesus appointed 12 apostles in chapter 3 and verses 16 to 19. And these were the men, ordinary men like you and I. These men would be the ones who would officially represent our Lord on earth. And they would be entrusted with the incredible responsibility of stewarding the revelation of God. And the Lord would empower them by His Holy Spirit to take this steward, this endowment, this revelation to the ends of the earth. Now, after all of that, after He had appointed the twelve, we come to verse 20 of chapter 3. And the text says that He came home. He appointed the twelve, then he came home in Capernaum, which is really Peter's house. And from chapter 3, verse 20, all the way over to chapter 5 and verse 20, is a single day in the life of Jesus. That's one day. Now, if you just look at the contents of those, of that, those sections, uh, you will realize that you've never had a long day in your life. It starts with the rejection of the Pharisees who accuse him of doing the work that he did by the power of the devil, and it ended with the story of the Gerasene demoniac. So it's a big day in Jesus' life. But at any rate, it begins with the story 
that starts in chapter 3 and verse 20, where we're reminded, and Mark really makes this point as he's presenting the history of Jesus' life. He's stressing the fact in chapter 3, verse 20, down to verse 35, the fact that everyone who encounters Jesus is forced to respond to him in some way. There's no way of escaping that reality. Once you encounter Jesus in his word or here in person, you necessarily had to respond. And the options were limited. You would either bow to him as Lord or you reject him by some form of unbelief. That's true today. You either bow to Jesus as Lord or you reject him. You either call him Lord or you call him a lunatic or you call him a liar. And we see, we'll see these. As we work through Mark, these responses mark, well, characterize every section in the Gospel of Mark. You've got to watch your mark there. So the question then emerged. If you have these responses of belief, unbelief, most people are responding to Jesus in unbelief. Why is it, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, the God-sent Savior of humanity, why is it that so many people have responded to Him in unbelief and not bow to Him as Lord? And we saw that that is where the parable of the sower comes in. It shows us that people's responses to the Word of Christ are determined by the condition of their hearts. A hard, proud heart, a stony, superficial heart, a thorn-infested, distracted heart will always end up rejecting the Lord Christ. Only those hearts that have been divinely prepared will respond to the message of Jesus. So, the parable of the sower then comes as a key to understand why people responded to Jesus the way they did. I covered that in, I think, seven weeks So if you have any confusion about that, just go back. But the point in rehearsing all of that is I want to draw something to your attention. Remember that not everyone was given the key to understand what was happening. We saw that in chapter 4 and verse 10. After Jesus had given the parable of the sower to the large crowds, remember he just gave the parable and not an explanation. So it's like a riddle to them. Verse 10 says, as soon as he was alone, this is chapter 4, verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. It's a vital passage to understand the text we're in this morning. The disciples were on the inside, and so they alone were given insight into what was really happening as Jesus was teaching and preaching. And to take it a step further, verse 11 says that the disciples were the only ones who were given this mystery of the kingdom of God. That's a very important phrase. So important that we spent essentially a a whole Sunday looking at that phrase. The mystery of the kingdom of God. Of God, When Jesus says to these men and women, actually, who have been pulled aside, these disciples, 12 apostles and then disciples, just followers, when Jesus says to them, to, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, 
what he's saying here is that the disciples are being entrusted with new revelation. A mystery is something that was formerly hidden, but now is being revealed. So Jesus is saying, something is coming to you, disciples, at this point that has not come to others in the past. You're a privileged class. And this mystery that's being unfolded is not a revision of past revelation. It's not a correction of the Old Testament. What you're receiving is new revelation that is a further development of all that God revealed about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. That's what the mystery of the kingdom of God means. So these things were hidden. These things about the kingdom that we're going to look at in the next two Sundays, these parables on the kingdom. The things we're going to look at were things that were hidden. They weren't disclosed to God's people in the Old Testament. But in this moment, Jesus is entrusting this to the disciples. And there's something important here that we just need to realize. In God's wisdom, He didn't give humanity every drop of revelation in a moment. And can you imagine if he says, Adam, come on over here. I got something for you. And in this one moment, he uploads all of revelatory history, all of human history. He uploads all of that into Adam's mind. Adam would have exploded. (laughs) Because he was limited, finite. He couldn't process all of that, and neither could you or I. So God, in His wisdom, has chosen to unveil the story of salvation, this wonderful narrative of how He comes to save sinners like you and I. He has chosen to reveal that over the course of millennia to you and I. And we stand on the backside of all of that at this point with this revelation. We are, of all people, most privileged. To be able to look back and see the story unfold. And now, back to our text. In this moment, Jesus has called these disciples to Himself. And He's going to entrust into their care a new dimension in the plan and program of God. And that dimension was this. We're going to see this over the next few weeks. That the glorious kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom that was promised in these wonderful passages like Zechariah 12, 13, 14, Amos 9, 11 to 15, Psalm 72, Isaiah 65, etc., etc., that this promised kingdom was not going to come immediately in all of its fullness, but it was going to come to God's people in phases. So that is to say that initially the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming wouldn't come with all the external pomp and splendor expected of normal, ordinary kingdoms. In fact, Luke 17 says the first phase of this kingdom is going to come where? In the hearts of men and women. Which is why Mark has been emphasizing what so much? The heart It's the heart. Because in the heart, this is where the inaugural phase of Christ's kingdom is coming. 
It's where the spiritual dimensions, even now, of the new covenant are being fulfilled in real time. And what we're going to see as we work through this, these next two parables, we're going to see that the kingdom is going to come in ways that were very contrary to expectations. It's going, to, it's going to grow. It's going to come, but it's going to grow very slowly, but steadily. And then eventually it will expand as it conquers the hearts of men and women to encompass all nations until one day the Messiah returns and inaugurates the physical dimensions promised in the Old Testament. But we're going to get there. That's not where we are this morning. At this point, back in Mark 4, uh, in our passage, at this point, Jesus is beginning to entrust this message, this new revelation of the gospel of the kingdom into the care of his disciples. And so, getting oriented here. After Jesus, in, in chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, after he's called them to himself, he's alone with them. And then verses 13 to 20, he's privately explained what the meaning of the parable of the sower is. He then, in verses 21 to 25, immediately begins to instruct them as to how they should respond to this new gift of revelation they've just received. And they're going to receive. And the instruction Jesus gives to them is utterly relevant to us today as well. To any disciple. Anytime we're brought face to face with the truth. So I'm going to walk through that with you and just lay this out to you in the time we have left. The first way then we are to respond when we receive revelation. I'm talking about revelation is God's disclosure of himself. We receive that through this book. And the moment where the disciples are with Jesus, they were receiving it all the time. And in this moment, Jesus had given them revelation, and the first way he exhorts them to respond is this way. They are to respond to revelation in a way that is consistent with the purpose of revelation. All right, that's verses 21 to 23. When you receive the truth, you are to respond to it in a way that is consistent with the purpose of revelation. Look at verse 21. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Now the grammar of that first phrase, he was saying to them, means that what follows is something that Jesus would often say. That's characteristic of him. You could translate it in the past tense, he said to them, but the grammar actually conveys something that was a habit. Something that he would typically do. And this was his custom. He would speak a parable to the crowd. And they would all be scratching their heads. The disciples as well would be scratching their heads. They would come to Jesus and say, could you tell us what that means? And Jesus would pull them aside. And then he would explain the parable to them. And then he would always finish his explanation with this simple analogy of a lamp. To make a very important point to them. As we'll see. The lamp, let me say a few things about this. The lamp, of course, was a common way of referring to the Word of God in the Old Testament. And in the New, Psalm 119, 105. You guys know this one. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 6, 23. 
It says the commandment of God is a lamp and the teaching a light. Psalm 19.8, the word enlightens the eyes. 2 Peter 1.19, the word of God is like a lamp shining in a dark place. You get it. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. And the lamp was the normal instrument for light in the first century. It's a small clay dish that would hold oil, usually olive oil. Uh, and the common lamp would be just a, kind of a, a saucer dish looking thing. But one of the ends would be pinched in to create a little crack. It'd fill it with olive oil. They would make a, a wick out of flax, dip it in that oil, hang the wick out, and light it. Interestingly, it would, it would burn for a couple of hours uh, until it started uh, going bad. And, and then the, usually the wife, the woman of the house, would have to go and cut the wick uh, and light it again so that it would stay lit. Proverbs 31. Her lamp does not go out at night. Right, she's diligent. That's beside the point here. The lamp, though, was common. And usually it would be lit and it would be set in a high place called the lampstand. It could be attached to the wall or in nicer homes it would be a stand on its own that could be placed in the middle of the room. But the purpose of the lamp was very simple. We know that. We get that. So, if you took the lamp, very simple concept, and placed it on a lampstand, you would be treating the lamp in a manner consistent with its purpose and nature, right? That's what you do with lamps. But if you were to take that same lamp and light it and then put it under a basket or under a bed, what would you be doing? Besides just being weird <laughs> and creating a fire hazard. You would be treating the lamp in a manner inconsistent with its very purpose and nature. You see that? You're treating the lamp in a way that really doesn't even make sense. Lamps are not designed that way. It's like you don't understand what the purpose of a lamp is. And Jesus is saying that divine revelation is like that. Its very nature is to shine and illuminate the darkness. Which is verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. You see the play on words there? The purpose of revelation is not that it be brought out and then hidden. It's brought out so that what was formerly hidden will now be exposed and made known. And then it would be passed on beyond the sphere of those initial recipients so that light would increase to more and more people. And look at verse 22. Nothing is hidden, says Jesus, except to be revealed. The word hidden there is the word kryptos. It's where we get our word cryptic. Cryptic. It means to be secret or invisible. And therefore, because it's secret and invisible in the mind of God, how can we ever know it? We would never know it unless God reveals it to us. And that's really the point of it all. Revelation is God's making known to us what we could never have known apart from His 
revealing of it. It means that you cannot, by your own wisdom, philosophize enough to figure out the truth. No philosopher can ever make his way into the revelation of the gospel. It has to be revealed from God. And Jesus is saying here that there is nothing. This is just really fascinating. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. So there is nothing in the mind of God regarding you or regarding really the kingdom of God that God intends to keep secret. But His design and delight is to make it known to you. And then look at the next clause in verse 22. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. It's really a parallel uh, with the first phrase, but the timing is different. The first phrase is in the present. Nothing is hidden currently. The second phrase reaches into the past. Nothing has been secret, but that it would come to light. Now understand, if you have the ESV, the ESV sort of smooths that out. But in Greek, there are two different tenses. The NASB is trying to capture the different tenses here. And the point really is, look, in the present, Jesus is saying, there are things that are hidden. He just said that. I'm hiding them from those people out there, and I'm giving them to you. So in the present, there are things that are hidden, but they are now being revealed to you at this very moment. And in the past, there were things hidden as well, but which have been brought to the light and are impacting you even today. In other words, God's design, God's nature, is to reveal and shine the light of His identity, His person, His character, and the gospel. So the purpose then in Revelation is that it would shine and that the truth would come out for all to see. I think that's Jesus' point. Now the question is why? Why doesn't Jesus just keep it in this little circle of, of disciples? They're the ones who've believed. Uh, why not just sort of keep it tight-knit? Right, don't mess up a good thing. Right, here are these guys who have the truth. Uh, is, I mean, that would be enough to try to rein in these 12. Um, you know, why get more people in on it? Well, the reason is because God's design and desire is to be known and worshipped and glorified in this world. A world full of darkness. A world full of men and women and children who have no time for God. Who are ignorant of God. Who do not know God and do not fear God. And God's design is that those people and desire is that the light of the gospel and the knowledge of God would shine out in a world that is marked by darkness. His design is that revelation would advance. And amazingly, it starts with just a few. That's the way He does it. He gives it to a few. And then the design is that it would be amplified and advanced through these few so that the knowledge of God and the gospel would spread to more and more people and that their praise and thanksgiving to God for who He is and what He has done would ascend to Him and His glory would abound. That's the purpose of Revelation. That's the nature of Revelation. That's why God gives 
revelation. And so, Jesus is calling the disciples in this text to respond to what they've just received in a manner that is consistent with that very purpose. He's basically, basically saying, don't take what I'm giving you. I'm giving you my mind. Right? The mind of God. I'm giving it to you. Don't take that and hide it. Take it and pass it on. Get your lamps ready. Because very soon, you men are going to be my witnesses throughout the world. So don't take the word and bury it. Respond to the word in a way that is consistent with its very purpose. Don't be the fool who takes the light and hides it under the basket. Okay? Shine it. Now, there's a very simple application, of course, and you probably already went that way in your own mind. Let me put the application to you in the form of a question. Are you responding to the revelation that you have received in a way that is consistent with the purpose of revelation? God gave it to you. If you know God, God is the one who opened your eyes. God gave you this truth from His Word. God pulled out the lamp of His Word so that you would set it on a lampstand so that the beams of truth would flood your home and your neighborhood and that by your shining of the light of truth, the darkness of human ignorance and depravity would be expelled. And people would see the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He didn't give it to you so that you would cloister yourself away and hoard the truth you've been given. And He didn't give it to you so that you would be content and say, whew, I'm glad I'm on the inside. Look at all those yahoos out here. They don't have anything. He didn't give it to you so that you would be content with the mere possession of it. The nature of truth is that it shines. The nature of revelation is that it is to shine. If you've been entrusted with it, your responsibility is to proclaim it to others. The truth carries that obligation. The gospel has that obligation built into it. The obligation of evangelism and discipleship. Now the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing with that responsibility? Have you hidden the truth or are you shining it out? So that's the first obligation. The obligatory response of of shining the truth. But there's a second way that we are to respond to the Word of God once we receive it. And that is that we're to respond to the truth in a way that recognizes the burden of revelation. That's verses 24 to 25. So we're to respond to truth or to revelation in a way that recognizes the burden of revelation. I understand that's a strange phrase, and I'm going to explain it to you, and hopefully you'll know what I mean by the end of this. If not, I failed, come talk to me afterwards. Or go talk to someone else. Maybe they'll help you understand it. Verses 24 and 25. Let me show you what I mean. 
So these disciples had been pulled to the side by Jesus and were given insight into the gospel of the kingdom, an insight that no one else had been given. Why God chose these men to be the stewards of this precious truth? Uh, We've visited that actually before, but you could read 1 Corinthians 1 uh, to get some more insight on that. But these were the ones, these simple, ordinary men were the ones who were now made privy to the mind of God. Out of everyone in the massive crowds, God chose these individuals to be the recipients and stewards of this new development in His program. Not that it was new to God. God doesn't revise His program. And God's not, we're not like on plan B or plan C. God's plan and His decree is unfolding before us. But He unfolds it to His people gradually or progressively. And so these men have, have now been entrusted with this stewardship. Incredible responsibility. And so in verse 24, Jesus looks at them and says, take care what you listen to. Or ESV, pay attention to what you hear. Literally, watch what you hear. It's a way of calling these men to attention. He's trying to heighten their awareness for them to be alert to what is even happening around them right now. For them to see the level of responsibility that's being placed on them. This is not just sort of throwaway theology here. This is not just, you know, we're not just chit-chatting about the best nets that you can use on your fishing industry now. We're not just sort of small talk. This is reality that is coming from the throne of God and is coming to you. Listen up. Take care how you hear. Not only is it coming to them with the burden of this stewardship, but they are to take care how they hear because they are the ones who are now propagating it. They better listen carefully, take notes, because this is divine revelation. And there are serious judgments on people who add to or take away from it. And they they have to pass this on. And they need to feel the responsibility of what's happening. This is why verse 24, Jesus says in the next phrase, take care what you listen to, because by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This is an illustration from the grain market, where the shopkeeper would have his container full of grain in front of him and his scales on a table. He would measure out the grain and charge his customers according to the weight. And the integrity of the shopkeeper was tied up with the integrity of his scales and the integrity of the instruments that he would dispense grain to others. And if he developed a reputation for a false balance or deception in his dealing with others. Who's going to come and buy grain from that guy? All right, so there's a lot riding on his measurement. Now you can imagine, right? You're talking, hey, don't go to that guy. Uh, his measurement is all off. And so it became sort of a figure of speech or just a metaphor. The measure, the standard of measure you use will be used on you. It refers to how you give something to another. Does that make sense? 
How you give something out to another. How you measure up the portion to be given. In Matthew 7, Jesus uses the same metaphor to refer to how you give out judgments. Matthew 7, 2. He says, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So the way he means by that, the way that you dole out judgments to others will become the standard by which you are judged by those same people. So the point is, be gracious. Be gracious to others. Don't be harsh. Don't be self-righteous or unfair in how you evaluate others. Expect the best and cover weaknesses because you have your weaknesses too. And so the point is just use a measurement that's gracious and kind. That's the idea. But in chapter 4, Mark 4, verse 24, there's a little bit different nuance. He's not talking about judging. He's talking about the way you receive revelation. What you do with the revelation you have. So how do you give that out? And Jesus says, how you measure up that revelation that you've been given and dole it out to others, that is what is important here. And if you listen carefully, which he calls them to, and respond obediently and give out the truth of God's word lovingly and accurately, Jesus says, more will be given you besides. That's the last phrase in verse 24. So what he's saying here is the more that you pass on, you've got to receive the revelation and respond to it in a way that's consistent with the nature of revelation. It's to shine. But be careful. Don't just go shining out there whatever you want to shine. Right? Take care how you listen and make sure you're teaching the word of truth with accuracy. And the more that you do this, the more that you take what you've been given and pass it on, more will be given you besides. That means that there's already something there. And as you're faithful with it, God will give you more alongside what you already have. That's just Luke 16.10. Where Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. That's the principle there. He says it again in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. So the principle that Jesus is emphasizing here is that those who are faithful and accurate, I mean, that is to be faithful with the truth, those who are faithful with the little they have will be entrusted with much more. So Jesus is saying to these men, be careful how you hear And watch how you respond. Because only those who are faithful with the little I've given them now will be given more later. Now there's a lot to say about that, but I just want to point out one principle here. There's a a principle of spiritual growth that you don't want to miss. The more you are faithful to implement the little truth you have, the more God will give to you. The more you are faithful to walk in the light of truth you've been given, the brighter the light will shine on you in the future. The people who hear the Word of God, receive the light, receive the revelation, and act on it, and respond in faith, and trust in God with the little bit they have, 
These are the one, ones that God delights to load down with more and more grace. And what happens is, it's really amazing. They get a little light. They understand one insight from Scripture. And they obey it. They trust God. And they say, God, I don't understand how my way that I want to do, how that is not superior to this way, but I hear your way, I see the light, you're shining, and I'm going to do what you say rather than what I want to do, and I'm going to trust your promises. And as they do that, they find God to be perfectly faithful and trustworthy. They find that God's way really is the best way. And so as they realize this in the little their faith begins to grow. And then they start venturing out on God's promises in bigger dimensions. And little by little, they obey. And little by little, God loads them with more and more grace until finally their confidence in God is soaring because they've trusted God with the little light they were given. And so they venture out on the promises of God. They trust Him. They learn to trust God when He says what He says. It's kind of like the child right, who, who initially is nervous to jump off the porch into your arms. Uh, but after they do it a couple times, you sort of back up, you back up, and then you've got them leaping you know, six foot into your arms, which is probably not wise, but they do it. Why? Because they trust you. Right? They learn to trust you. And this is what happens as you trust God with the little. He, he lavishes you with grace. You find Him to be faithful, trustworthy, and then you begin to jump out on more and more of His promises. Now, I want to say something else here, because I know that there are a lot of people, uh, many of you are newly converted. You're relatively new believers. In God's kindness, we've seen a lot of people coming to Christ, coming from other ways of thinking, other churches that thought differently, think differently than we do. And you find yourself here, and you look around, and if you're, if you're not careful, you can be tempted at the maturity level of some of the godly people, many godly people that we have in this church. And you may be tempted to look at them with jealousy or envy and think they could never understand you because they're so way, up there, so different than you are, and you think you'll never get there. But I want to just tell you something. Now, do you understand how the godliest people in your life got to where they are? And do you understand? And do you want to know uh, the sort of secret to Christian maturity? It's right here. There's no magic to it. It's moment by moment obedience to the little light you have. That's the secret. Moment by moment obedience to the little light you have, little by little, the light of the Word of God shines in on your life. You see those dirty rooms in your heart that you thought you, know, you couldn't see before because the lights were off. And all of a sudden, there's a little light. And the, the mature Christian is the one who, when the light comes on and they see it, they don't go and turn it off and run away. What they do is they see the light, they see the filth, and they, by the grace of God, they go to work, cleaning the room. That's obedience. 
They don't shove it all in the closet. They clean. They respond to the light they have in obedience. Now, of course, they fall and they stumble all along the way. But they've decided, with God's help, by God's grace, to obey the light they have and to be obedient with the knowledge they have. And all along the way, they, they understand that they have the smile of God, not because they're righteous and perfect, but because they're responding in faith to the light they have. And what God does is He looks at that little obedience and it delights Him. And He lavishes that weak Christian with just a little bit of light. What He does is He goes over to the dimmer switch and brightens it up a little more. And brightens it up a little more. As they are faithful with the little, God lavishes lavishes them with much. And so that's the way that Christian maturity works. That Christian growth works. There's no secret to it. It's simply responding to the light you currently have and obeying God in that. Often I think we sort of look around at other people and think, man, I wish I had that much light. I wish I had that much light. Look, if you sit around and wish that you had the light that other people have, you're going to stay right where you are. And that's actually the burden of Revelation in its entirely. Look down at verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever has to him more shall be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So don't sit around and moan about what you don't have. Friend, what light do you see? What rooms are dirty? Go to work. Obey what you know God has called you to do. As God brings light to you, you respond in obedience. And that sober element of verse 25, I mean, it's just heavy. Even what you have will be taken away from you. I think that's the burden. That's what I meant by burden. The, the, the joy of it all is God gives you more. The burden of it is if you don't steward what you have, it's taken away. That's heavy. It's, it's challenging. And it means, what he means by that, I think, is that if you just stand still, if you just sit on it, if you're given the truth, if you're given the light, and you just sit there and you do nothing with it, even that semblance of knowledge will be taken away from you. It was superficial knowledge in the first place because you didn't respond to it in obedience. And God says that if you're not faithful with the little you're given, He will come and take it from you. Both of those verbs, notice verse 25, more shall be given and even what he has shall be taken away from you. The subject of the verb is not mentioned. These are called divine passives. It's a way of sort of emphasizing the sobriety of it all. God will take it away or God will give you more. Let me just wrap this up here. If you respond to the light of truth in the way that God calls you to, then verse 25 says that He will load you down with more. And your joy and your delight will increase and you'll find that salvation is an ever-deepening stream and that every blessing in your life is a promise of more grace and blessing to come. And you'll be awake and alert to God in every sphere of your life because you've learned to obey God with the little light you were given. And it's really a wonderful prospect. 
It's not, of course, that God will come to you and whisper sweet nothings in your heart. That's not it. That's not the way that God works at this particular point in progressive revelation. He doesn't send you dreams and visions and you know, ecstatic speech or whatever. He doesn't do that. What He does for His people who obey the light is He gives them more and more insight into His Word. That's the delight and the joy. You see someone who's got facility in the Word of God? That's someone who's been faithful with the little light they were given. Those who are faithful with a little are entrusted with much. And so here are these simple, ordinary disciples. Hold away with Jesus, maybe up by the lake, maybe in some sort of field, all alone. And they're accosted all the time by the crowds. And now here they are, all by themselves with their Lord. And they've been entrusted with a divine gift, the truth. And Jesus just says to them, one, don't hide this. Let it shine. And two, be careful to listen well. Be careful to read well, interpret well. And then bring your life gradually into conformity to what I'm giving you. That's what's required of you. Those are the obligations that I'm laying on you. Don't hide it, shine it. Proclaim it accurately and conform your life to it. And may the Lord help us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the light of your word. And we confess that our understanding is so weak compared to what we could have. And we understand, Lord, that often that is because we have been unfaithful with the light you've given us. So we would ask, Father, that you would grant us repentance, that we would turn from our covetousness of wanting more when we have been unfaithful with the little we've been given. Help us to exercise the faith you've planted in our hearts. Uh, one, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust Him and rest on Him. And two, to propagate the light, shine the light faithfully. And three, to bring our lives into conformity to it more and more. And Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.